A pair of blue eyes. Chapter twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tide Hines. A pair of blue eyes by Thomas Hardy. Chapter twelve. Adieu, she cries, and waved her lily hand. The few tattered clouds of the morning enlarged and united. The sun withdrew behind them to emerge no more that day, and the evening drew to a close in drifts of rain. The water-drops beat like duck-shot against the window of the railway carriage containing Stephen and Elfride. The journey from Plymouth to Paddington, by even the most headlong express, allows quite enough leisure for passion of any sort to cool. Elfride's excitement had passed off, and she sat in a kind of stupor during the latter half of the journey. She was aroused by the clanging of the maze of rails over which they traced their way at the entrance to the station. "'Is this London?' she said. "'Yes, darling,' said Stephen, in a tone of assurance he was far from feeling. To him, no less than to her, the reality so greatly differed from the prefiguring. She peered out as well as the window, beaded with drops, would allow her, and saw only the lamps, which had just been lit, blinking in the wet atmosphere and rows of hideous zinc chimney-pipes in dim relief against the sky. She writhed uneasily, as when a thought is swelling in the mind which must cause much pain at its deliverance in words. Elfride had known no more about the stings of evil report than the native wildfowl knew of the effects of Crusoe's first shot. Now she saw a little further, and a little further still. The train stopped. Stephen relinquished the soft hand he had held all the day, and proceeded to assist her onto the platform. This act of alighting upon strange ground seemed all that was wanted to complete a resolution within her. She looked at her betrothed with despairing eyes. "'Oh, Stephen!' she exclaimed. "'I am so miserable. I must go home again. I must, I must. Forgive my wretched vacillation. I don't like it here, nor myself, nor you.' Stephen looked bewildered, and did not speak. "'Will you allow me to go home?' she implored. "'I won't trouble you to go with me. "'I will not be any weight upon you. "'Only say you will agree to my returning, "'that you will not hate me for it, Stephen. "'It is better that I should return again. "'Indeed it is, Stephen.' "'But we can't return now,' he said in a deprecatory tone. "'I must, I will. "'How? When do you want to go? "'Now. Can we go at once?' The lad looked hopelessly along the platform. "'If you must go, and think it wrong to remain, dearest,' he said sadly, "'you shall. You shall do whatever you like, my Elfride. But would you in reality rather go now than stay till to-morrow, and go as my wife?' "'Yes, yes, much, anything to go now. I must, I must,' she cried. "'We ought to have done one of two things,' he answered gloomily. "'Never to have started, or not to have returned without being married.' I don't like to say it, Elfride, indeed I don't, but you must be told this, that going back unmarried may compromise your good name in the eyes of people who may hear of it. They will not, and I must go. Oh, Elfride, I am to blame for bringing you away. Not at all. I am the elder. By a month, and what's that? But never mind that now. He looked around. Is there a train for Plymouth tonight? he inquired of a guard. The guard passed on and did not speak. 
"'Is there a train for Plymouth tonight?' said Elfride to another. "'Yes, miss, the eight-ten. Leaves in ten minutes. You've come to the wrong platform. It's on the other side. Change of Bristol into the night mail. Down that staircase and under the line.' They ran down the staircase, Elfride first, to the booking office, and into a carriage with an official standing beside the door. "'Show your tickets, please.' They are locked in. Men about the platform accelerate their velocities till they fly up and down like shuttles in a loom. A whistle, the waving of a flag, a human cry, a steam groan, and away they go to Plymouth again, just catching these words as they glide off. "'Those two youngsters had any ear run for it, and no mistake.' Elfrida found her breath. "'And you have come too, Stephen. Why did you?' "'I shall not leave you till I see you safe at St. Launce's. Do not think worse of me than I am, Elfrida.' And then they rattled along through the night, back again by the way they had come. The weather cleared, and the stars shone upon them. Their two or three fellow-passengers sat for most of the time with eyes closed. Stephen sometimes slept. Elfrida alone was wakeful and palpitating hour after hour. The day began to break and reveal that they were by the sea. Red rocks overhung them, and receding into distance grew livid in the blue-grey atmosphere. The sun rose and sent penetrating shafts of light in upon their weary faces. Another hour and the world began to be busy. They waited yet a little, and the train slackened its speed in view of the platform at St. Launce's. She shivered and mused sadly. "'I did not see all the consequences,' she said. "'Appearances are woefully against me. If anybody finds me out, I am, I suppose, disgraced.' "'Then appearances will speak falsely. And how can that matter, even if they do?' I shall be your husband sooner or later, for certain, and so prove your purity. Stephen, once in London I ought to have married you, she said firmly. It was my only safe defence. I see more things now than I did yesterday. My only remaining chance is not to be discovered, and that we must fight for most desperately. They stepped out. Elfrida pulled a thick veil over her face. A woman with red and scaly eyelids and glistening eyes was sitting on a bench just inside the office door. She fixed her eyes upon Elfrida with an expression whose force it was impossible to doubt, but the meaning of which was not clear. Then, upon the carriage they had left, she seemed to read a sinister story by the scene. Elfrida shrank back and turned the other way. "'Who, who is that woman?' said Stephen. "'She looked hard at you.' Mrs. Jethway, a widow, and mother of that young man whose tomb we sat on the other night. Stephen, she's my enemy. Would that God had had mercy enough upon me to have hidden this from her? Do not talk so hopelessly, he remonstrated. I don't think she recognised us. I pray that she did not. He put on a more vigorous mood. Now, we will go and get some breakfast. No, no, she begged. I cannot eat. I must get back to Endelstow. Elfrida was as if she had grown years older than Stephen now. But you have had nothing since last night but that cup of tea at Bristol. I can't eat, Stephen. Wine and biscuit? No. Nor tea or coffee? No. A glass of water? No. I want something that makes people strong and energetic for the present, that borrows the strength of tomorrow for use today. "'leaving tomorrow without any at all for that matter. 
or even that would take all life away to-morrow, as long as it enabled me to get home again now. Brandy, that's what I want. That woman's eyes have eaten my heart away. You are wild, and you grieve me, darling. Must it be brandy? Yes, if you please. How much? I, I don't know. I have never drunk more than a teaspoonful at once. All I know is that I want it. Don't get it at the falcon. He left her in the fields, and went to the nearest inn in that direction. Presently he returned with a small flask nearly full, and some slices of bread and butter, thin as wafers, in a paper bag. Elfrida took a sip or two. Oh, it, it goes into my eyes, she said wearily. I can't take any more. Yes, I will. I will close my eyes. Ah, it goes to them by an inside route. I don't want it. Throw it away. However, she could eat, and did eat. Her chief attention was concentrated now on how to get the horse from the falcon stables without suspicion. Stephen was not allowed to accompany her into the town. She acted now upon conclusions reached without any aid from him. His power over her seemed to have departed. You had better not be seen with me, even here where I am so little known. We have begun stealthily as thieves, and we must end stealthily as thieves at all hazards. Until papa has been told by me myself, a discovery would be terrible. Walking and gloomily talking thus, they waited till nearly nine o'clock, at which time Elfrida thought she might call at the Falcon without creating much surprise. Behind the railway station was the river, spanned by an old Tudor bridge, whence the road diverged in two directions, one skirting the suburbs of the town and winding round again to the high road to Endelstow. Beside this road Stephen sat, and awaited her return from the Falcon. He sat as one sitting for a portrait, motionless, watching the chequered lights and shades on the tree-trunks, the children playing opposite the school previous to entering for the morning lesson, and reapers in a field afar off. The certainty of possession had not come, and there was nothing to mitigate the youth's gloom. That increased with the thought of the parting now so near. At length she came trotting round to him, in appearance much as on the romantic morning of their visit to the cliff, but shorn of the radiance which glistened about her then. However, her comparative immunity from further risk and trouble had considerably composed her. Elfrida's capacity for being wounded was only surpassed by her capacity for healing, which, rightly or wrongly, is by some considered an index of transientness of feeling in general. Elfrida, what do they say at the Falcon? Nothing. Nobody seems curious about me. They knew I went to Plymouth, and I have stayed there a night now and then with Miss Bicknell. I rather calculated upon that. And now parting arose like a death to these children, for it was imperative that she should start at once. Stephen walked beside her for nearly a mile. During the walk he said sadly, Elfrida, Four and twenty hours have passed, and the thing is not done. But you have ensured that it shall be done. How have I? Oh, Stephen, you ask how. Do you think I could marry another man on earth after having gone thus far with you? Have I not shown beyond possibility of doubt that I can be nobody else's? Have I not irretrievably committed myself? Pride has stood for nothing in the face of my great love. You misunderstood my turning back, and I cannot explain it. It was wrong to go with you at all, and though it would have been worse to go further, it would have been better policy, perhaps. 
be assured of this that whenever you have a home for me however poor and humble and come and claim me i am ready she added bitterly when my father knows of this day's work he may be only too glad to let me go perhaps he may then insist upon our marriage at once stephen answered seeing a ray of hope in the very focus of her remorse i hope he may even if we still have to part till i am ready for you as we intended elfride did not reply you don't seem the same woman elfie that you were yesterday nor am i but good-bye go back now and she reined the horse for parting oh stephen she cried i feel so weak i don't know how to meet him cannot you after all come back with me shall i come elfride paused to think no it will not do it is my utter foolishness that makes me say such words but he will send for you say to him continued stephen that we did this in the absolute despair of our minds tell him we don't wish him to favour us only to deal justly with us if he says marry now so much the better if not say that all may be put right by his promise to allow me to have you when i am good enough for you which may be soon say i have nothing to offer him in exchange for his treasure the more sorry i but all the love and all the life and all the labour of an honest man shall be yours as to when this had better been told i leave you to judge his words made her cheerful enough to toy with her position and if ill report should come stephen she said smiling why the orange tree must save me as it saved virgins in st george's time from the poisonous breath of the dragon there forgive me for forwardness i am going then the boy and girl beguiled themselves with words of half parting only own wifey god bless you till we meet again till we meet again good-bye the pony went on and she spoke to him no more he saw her figure diminished and her blue veil grow grey saw it with the agonising sensations of a slow death after thus parting from a man than whom she had known no greater as yet elfride rode rapidly onwards a tear being occasionally shaken from her eyes into the road what yesterday had seemed so desirable so promising even trifling had now acquired the complexion of a tragedy she saw the rocks and sea of the neighbourhood of endelstow and heaved a sigh of relief when she passed the field behind the vicarage she heard the voices of unity and william worm they were hanging carpet upon a line unity was uttering a sentence that concluded with when miss elfride comes when ye expect her not till evening now she's safe enough in miss bicknell's bless her elfride went round to the door she did not knock or ring and seeing nobody to take the horse elfride led her round to the yard slipped off the bridle and saddle drove her towards the paddock and turned her in then elfride crept indoors and looked into all the ground-floor rooms her father was not there on the mantelpiece of the drawing-room stood a letter addressed to her in his handwriting she took it and read it as she went upstairs to change her habit strathley thursday dear elfride on second thoughts i will not return to-day but only come as far as wadcombe i shall be at home by to-morrow afternoon and bring a friend with me yours in haste c s after making a quick toilet she felt more revived though still suffering from a headache on going out of the door she met unity at the top of the stair 
"'Oh, Miss Elfride!' I said to myself, "'Tis her spirit. "'We didn't dream of you not coming home last night. "'You didn't say anything about staying.' "'I intended to come home the same evening, but altered my plan. "'I wished I hadn't afterwards. "'Papa will be angry, I suppose.' "'You better not tell him, miss,' said Unity. "'I do fear to,' she murmured. "'Unity, would you just begin telling him when he comes home?' "'What, and get you into trouble?' i deserve it no indeed i won't said unity it's not such a mighty matter miss i says to myself master's taken holiday and because he's not been kind lately to miss elfride she is imitating him well do as you like and now will you bring me some luncheon after satisfying an appetite which the fresh marine air had given her in its victory over an agitated mind she put on her hat and went to the garden and summer-house she sat down and leant with her head in a corner. Here she fell asleep. Half awake she hurriedly looked at the time. She had been there three hours. At the same moment she heard the outer gate swing together and wheels sweep round the entrance, some prior noise from the same source having probably been the cause of her awaking. Next her father's voice was heard calling William Worm. Elfride passed along a walk towards the house behind a belt of shrubs. She heard a tongue holding converse with her father, which was not that of either of the servants. Her father and the stranger were laughing together. Then there was a rustling of silk, and Mr. Swancourt and his companion, or companions, to all seeming, entered the door of the house, for nothing more of them was audible. Elfride had turned back to meditate on what friends these could be when she heard footsteps and her father exclaiming behind her. "'No, oh, Elfride, there you are. I hope you got on well.' Elfride's heart smote her, and she did not speak. "'Come back to the summer-house a minute,' continued Mr. Swancourt. "'I have to tell you of that I promised to.' They entered the summer-house, and stood leaning over the knotty woodwork of the balustrade. "'Now,' said her father radiantly, "'guess what I have to say.' He seemed to be regarding his own existence so intently that he took no interest in, nor even saw, the complexion of hers. "'I cannot, papa,' she said sadly. "'Try, dear.' "'I would rather not, indeed.' "'You are tired. You look worn. The ride was too much for you. Well, this is what I went away for. I went to be married.' "'Married?' she faltered and could hardly check an involuntary, so did I. A moment after, and her resolve to confess perished like a bubble. Yes, to whom do you think? Mrs. Troyton, the new owner of the estate over the hedge, and of the old manor-house. It was only finally settled between us when I went to Stratley a few days ago. He lowered his voice to a sly tone of merriment. Now, as to your stepmother, you'll find she's not much to look at though a good deal to listen to. She's twenty years older than myself, for one thing. You forget that I know her. She called here once, after we had been, and found her away from home. Of course, of course. Well, whatever her looks are, she's as excellent a woman as ever breathed. She has had lately left her, as absolute property, three thousand five hundred a year, besides the device of this estate. And, by the way, a large legacy came to her in satisfaction of dower, as it is called. Three thousand five hundred a year? Ah, 
and a large well a fair-sized mansion in town and a pedigree as long as my walking-stick though that bears evidence of being rather a raked up affair done since the family got rich people do these things now as they build ruins on maiden estates and cast antiques at birmingham elfride merely listened and said nothing he continued more quietly and impressively yes elfride she is wealthy in comparison with us though with very few connections however she will introduce you to the world a little we are going to exchange her house in baker street for one at kensington for your sake everybody is going there now she says at easter's we shall fly down to town for the usual three months i shall have a curate of course by that time elfride i am past love you know and i honestly confess that i married her for your sake why a woman of her standing should have thrown herself away upon me god knows but i suppose her age and plainness were too pronounced for a town man with your good looks if you now play your cards well you may marry anybody of course a little contrivance will be necessary but there's nothing to stand between you and a husband with a title that i can see lady luxellian was only a squire's daughter now don't you see how foolish that old fancy was but come she's indoors waiting to see you it is as good as play too continued the vicar as they walked towards the house i courted her through the privet hedge over yonder not entirely you know but we used to walk there of an evening nearly every evening at last but i needn't tell you the details now everything was terribly matter-of-fact i assure you at last the day i saw her at stratley we determined to settle it off-hand and you never said a word to me replied elfride not reproachfully either in tone or thought indeed her feeling was the very reverse of reproachful she felt relieved and even thankful where confidence had not been given how could confidence be expected her father mistook her dispassionateness for a veil of politeness over a sense of ill-usage i am not altogether to blame he said there were two or three reasons for secrecy one was the recent death of her relative the testator although that did not apply to you but remember elfride he continued in a stiffer tone you had mixed yourself up so foolishly with those low people the smiths and it was just too when mrs Troyton and myself were beginning to understand each other that i resolved to say nothing even to you how did i know how far you had gone with them and their son you might have made a point of taking tea with them every day for all i knew elfride swallowed her feelings as best she could and languidly though flatly asked the question did you kiss mrs Troyton on the lawn about three weeks ago that evening i came into the study and found you had just had candles in mr swancourt looked rather red and abashed as middle-aged lovers are apt to do when caught in the tricks of younger ones well yes i, I think i did he stammered just to please her you know and then recovering himself he laughed heartily and this was what your horatian quotation referred to it was elfride they stepped into the drawing-room from the veranda at that moment mrs swancourt came downstairs and entered the same room by the door here charlotte is my little elfride said mr swancourt with the increased affection of tone often adopted towards relations when newly produced poor elfride not knowing what to do did nothing at all but stood receptive of all that came to her by sight hearing and touch mrs swancourt moved forward took her stepdaughter's hand and then kissed her 
"'Ah, darling!' she exclaimed good-humouredly. "'You didn't think when you showed a strange old woman over the conservatory a month or two ago, and explained the flowers to her so prettily, that she would soon be here in new colours. Nor did she, I'm sure.' The new mother had been truthfully enough described by Mr. Swancourt. She was not physically attractive. She was dark, very dark in complexion, portly in figure, and with a plentiful residuum of hair in the proportion of half a dozen white ones to half a dozen black ones, though the latter were indeed black. No further observed she was not a woman to like, but there was more to see. To the most superficial critic it was apparent that she made no attempt to disguise her age. She looked sixty at the first glance, and close acquaintanceship never proved her older. Another and still more winning trait was one attaching to the corners of her mouth. Before she made a remark, these often twitched gently, not backwards and forwards, the index of nervousness, not down upon the jaw the sign of determination, but palpably upwards, in precisely the curve adopted to represent mirth in the broad caricatures of schoolboys. Only this element in her face was expressive of anything within the woman, but it was unmistakable. It expressed humour, subjective as well as objective, which could survey the peculiarities of self in as whimsical a light as those of other people. This is not all of Mrs. Swancourt. She had held out to Elfride hands whose fingers were literally stiff with rings, signes aracurigentes, like Helen's robes. These rows of rings were not worn in vanity, apparently. They were mostly antique and dull, though a few were the reverse. Right hand. First, plainly set oval onyx, representing a devil's head. Second, green jasper intaglio with red veins. Third, entirely gold, bearing figure of a hideous griffin. Fourth, a sea-green monster diamond with small diamonds around it. Fifth, antique cornelian intaglio of dancing figure of a satyr sixth an angular band chased with dragon's heads seventh a faceted carbuncle accompanied by ten little twinkling emeralds and etc and etc left hand first a reddish-yellow toadstone second a heavy ring enamelled in colours and bearing a jacinth third an amethystine sapphire, fourth, a polished ruby surrounded by diamonds, fifth, the engraved ring of an abbess, sixth, a gloomy intaglio, and etc., and etc. Beyond this rather quaint array of stone and metal, Mrs. Swancourt wore no ornament whatever. Elfrida had been favourably impressed with Mrs. Troyton at their meeting about two months earlier, but to be pleased with a woman as a momentary acquaintance was different from being taken with her as a stepmother. However, the suspension of feeling was just for a moment. Elfrida decided to like her still. Mrs. Swancourt was a woman of the world as to knowledge, the reverse as to action, as her marriage suggested. Elfrida and the lady were soon inextricably involved in conversation, and Mrs. Swancourt left them to themselves. "'And what do you find to do with yourself here?' Mrs. Swancourt said after a few remarks about the wedding. "'You ride, I know.' "'Yes, I ride, but not much, because Papa doesn't like my going alone.' "'You must have somebody to look after you.' "'And I read and write a little.' "'You should write a novel. The regular resource of people who don't go enough into the world to live a novel is to write one.' 
"'I have done it,' said Elfride, looking dubiously at Mrs. Swancourt, as if in doubt whether she should meet with ridicule here. "'That's right. Now, then, what is it about, dear?' "'About? Well, it's the romance of the Middle Ages.' "'Ah, knowing nothing of the present age which everybody knows about, for safety you choose an age known neither to you nor to other people. That's it, eh? No, no, I don't mean it, dear.' "'Well, I have had some opportunities of studying medieval art and manners in the library and private museum at Endelstow House, and I thought I should like to try my hand upon a fiction. I know the time for these tales is past, but I was interested in it, very much interested. When is it to appear? Oh, never, I suppose. Nonsense, my dear girl. Publish it by all means. All ladies do that sort of thing now, not for profit, you know, but as a guarantee of mental respectability to their future husbands. An excellent idea of us ladies. Though I am afraid it rather resembles the melancholy ruse of throwing loaves over castled walls at besiegers, and suggests desperation rather than plenty inside. Did you ever try it? No, I was too far gone even for that. Papa says no publisher will take my book. That remains to be proved. I'll give my word, my dear, that by this time next year it shall be printed. "'Will you, indeed?' said Elfrida, partially brightening with pleasure, though she was sad enough in her depths. "'I thought brains were the indispensable, even if the only, qualification for admission to the Republic of Letters. A mere commonplace creature like me will soon be turned out again.' "'Oh, no. Once you are there, you'll be like a drop of water in a piece of rock-crystal.' Your medium will dignify your commonness. It will be great satisfaction, Elfrida murmured, and thought of Stephen, and wished she could make a great fortune by writing romances, and marry him and live happily. And then we'll go to London, and then to Paris, said Mrs. Swancourt. I have been talking to your father about it, but we have first to move to the manor-house, and we think of staying at Torquay while that is going on. Meanwhile, instead of going on a honeymoon scamper by ourselves, we have come home to fetch you— and go altogether to Bath for two or three weeks. Elfrida assented pleasantly, even gladly, but she saw that by this marriage her father and herself had ceased for ever to be the close relations they had been up to a few weeks ago. It was impossible now to tell him the tale of her wild elopement with Stephen Smith. He was still snugly housed in her heart. His absence had regained for him much of that aureola of saintship which had been nearly abstracted during her reproachful mood on that miserable journey from London. Rapture is often cooled by contact with its cause, especially if under awkward conditions, and that last experience with Stephen had done anything but make him shine in her eyes. His very kindness in letting her return was an offence. Elfrida had her sex's love of sheer force in a man, however ill-directed, and at that critical juncture in London, Stephen's only chance of retaining the ascendancy over her that his face and not his parts had acquired for him would have been by doing what, for one thing, he was too youthful to undertake, that was, dragging her by the wrist to the rails of some altar, and peremptorily marrying her. Decisive action is seen by appreciative minds to be frequently objectless, and sometimes fatal, but decision, however suicidal, has more charm for a woman than the most unequivocal Fabian success. However, some of the unpleasant accessories of that occasion were now out of sight again, and Stephen had resumed not a few of his fancy colours. End of chapter 12